Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be talking with El Monitor columnist Bijan Kajapur, managing partner of Eurasian Nexus Partners, a Vienna-based international strategic consulting firm. Bijan will be talking with us about the prospects for U.S.-Iran relations under a Biden administration, the candidates and issues shaping Iran's presidential elections next year, Iran's relationships with Russia, China, and Middle Eastern countries, why regime change hasn't worked in Iran, and whether there might be a chance for the release of Americans unjustly imprisoned in Iran. My conversation with Bijan Kajapur begins after this short break. The experience of the JCPOA taught the Iranians that you can't really have the European Union without the U.S. And as long as the U.S. is out there sanctioning Iran with primary and secondary sanctions, they have to forget the Western powers and focus on the Eastern powers. And this is exactly what's happening. A focus on the Eastern powers for two reasons. One is they can act independently. They are not going to always watch what the Americans are saying. And second, their trade and investment relations with Russia and China are not uh, attached to political and human rights issues and, 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 and debates on other uh, levels. And, and these are exactly the two types of expectations that Iran would have. That was El Monitor columnist Bijan Kajapur, who will be joining us shortly. It probably goes without saying or saying again that Iran will be the most challenging issue in the Middle East for the incoming Biden administration. Now, despite Biden's commitment to re-enter the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or Iran nuclear deal, if Iran is in compliance, doing so may not be so easy especially if Biden is serious about wanting to engage Iran in discussions about modifying the agreement, which Iran has opposed. And it won't be easy if Iran is serious about demanding compensation and an apology for the Trump administration's maximum pressure policies and sanctions since May 2018, when the U.S. withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Biden is unlikely to give an apology or offer compensation. Our guest today, Bijan Kajapur, managing partner of Eurasian Nexus Partners in Vienna, suggests that despite the current official statements, there are indeed possibilities for creative diplomacy between the U.S. and Iran. For those of you who know Bijan and read his articles at Al Monitor and elsewhere, you know that he is one of the most highly regarded and in-demand experts on Iran anywhere. As you will hear from our conversation, which begins now. Bijan, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's get into it. Uh, Iran President Hassan Rouhani has said he expects the U.S. to re-enter the nuclear deal without conditions. Earlier, he said that Iran expects compensation for losses suffered as a result of U.S. sanctions and an apology. Yeah. Joe Biden has said he will return to the Iran nuclear deal if Iran is in compliance. 
and would like to try to strengthen some provisions and extend the deadlines which Iran has rejected. Now, how do you assess the fate of the Iran nuclear deal from how you believe the Iranian government sees it at this time with an incoming Biden administration? Um, so the short answer is that uh, there is a desire on the Iranian side to uh, restore the, the nuclear, nuclear deal, the JCPOA, uh, mainly because uh, it would achieve one of the main goals in Tehran, which is getting rid of the current sanctions that have uh, put a lot of pressure on, on Iran, especially on the economic developments in the country. But when we go a bit deeper into the situation in Tehran, uh, we see the, the different approaches and the different agendas. As, as you, know, you know, we have in Iran uh, a very complex power structure. We have a government, but we also have institutions that are outside the control of the president. So we have to look at uh, two different and parallel questions. One is what does the government want? The government is controlled by Rouhani, Zarif, the moderates. They would like to uh, achieve uh, what we can call a compliance for compliance um, uh, return of the US to the nuclear deal. But when we look at what the other forces, especially the more hardline forces want, um, they, they obviously have uh, a very deep distrust in the Americans, but they also have uh, an agenda that connects to the domestic uh, timeline of developments in Iran, which is basically the upcoming presidential elections in June 2021. So they would like, I would say the hardliners would also like to achieve sanctions relief and get as much uh, from, or as, as many concessions from the US side as possible, including compensation and maybe other, uh, other benefits, but they would like to do it themselves. So in other words, they would like to win the presidency in June, 2021, um, and then engage the US side. And this inner conflict within the Iranian uh, political system is creating hiccups. So you have on the one side, the government saying, uh, we would like to see a compliance for compliance. And on the other side, you have, for example, the hardline parliament uh, discussing a law to com compel the Iranian uh, government to not only leave the JCPOA, but also leave the NPT. So you have, you, again, you have contradicting voices from Iran. But I would say uh, the desire to restore the JCPOA um, is strong, especially because it will have positive um, economic effects on the country, uh, but uh, the political path um, and also the timeline um, uh, will be difficult. Um, there are also other, uh, other aspects um, that we need to understand. Um, there is obviously the pride element, so the Iranian side, no matter whom you would talk to, uh, would say, well, it were the Americans who violated the deal by leaving the deal in 2018. So if they want to re-engage or in the words of uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, uh, regain a seat at the JCPOA table, then it's the Biden administration who should take the first step. Uh, so there is also some space for uh, 
how to sequence different steps and different actions. So it's generally, um, you know, a situation where both sides, in my view, would like to achieve something positive, but it will require some creative diplomacy and, and, and political decisions on both sides. When you mention how the uh, conservative camp may want the credit for reestablishing the JCPOA if they can get it uh, and if they take power, does that mean that between now and the elections that uh, we can't expect much in terms of a return to the JCPOA? Because it doesn't seem to me like the an incoming Biden administration is going to offer compensation or an apology. Um, it's true. It's going to be be challenging. Uh, I, I will I will say a few words about the Iranian side, but then I will come back to the issue of compensation as well because I think there is there is space for some creativity. Um, the Iranian side, um, well, we have to consider the moderates are still in government. They don't control much of the other um, uh, power centers, parliament, judiciary, supreme leadership, all of the, the various councils that have an impact on decision-making processes are controlled by the, by the more conservative forces, but the government um, is, um, is still controlled and dominated by the moderates. And we should remember that um, the, these types of decisions, for example, the decision whether to re-engage the US within the uh, nuclear deal or whether to make some other strategic decisions, these are made by the so-called Supreme National Security Council. And the Supreme National Security Council is actually chaired by the president uh, and a number of the uh, moderate ministers are members in it. Uh, and it has a secretary called Ali Shamkhani who is a former RGC uh, commander, but really closer to the, let's say, centrists in the Iranian politics. So the question is, can the current composition of the Supreme National Security Council convince all the others that this is the right step to take? Um, and that will heavily depend on the type of discourse and the type of, uh, let's say, offers or um, incentives that the Biden administration would, uh, uh, would sort of extend to the Iranian side. And that's why the notion of compensation is important. For example, Mr. Qalibov, um, who the, the speaker of the Iranian parliament, who is one of the hardliners, sort of arch conservatives, in his speech yesterday, he, there was a very interesting nuance. He obviously, repeated all the revolutionary anti-American um, narrative. But then he said, the Americans have to make up for the losses uh, that Iran has suffered. He didn't say they have to pay a compensation. So making up for these um, losses could also be, for example, and in my view, it should be something that is feasible on the American side, if the Biden administration indicates that it will not object to a $5 billion loan from the International Monetary Fund to Iran. Iran has applied for this, fund, uh, for this loan uh, in the light of the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the Iranian economy. 
so far the American, I mean, the Trump administration had, had sort of uh, uh, undermined the process or, or had rejected the process of decision-making, but IMF has also not said no. So if the Biden administration says, we are going to remove the American objection to this loan and this loan is actually approved, it would look like a very nice uh, sort of starting point without any payment or without any real compensation from the US side, but it could be sold on the Iranian side as a, as a positive gesture to then justify the next step. So I think that's why I said there is a need for creative diplomacy and, and political decision-making. Um, and that is what, what it will take. If, if uh, even President-elect Biden, before he takes office, uh, gives an interview and mentions that once he's president, he will remove some of these obstacles or he will immediately issue some executive orders lifting some of the uh, harsher sanctions of the past couple of years. It could be seen as a, as a positive gesture. Even it could be seen within the Iranian context, it could be seen as, a, as an apology. So again, you can package steps by the Biden administration in a way that it will um, lead to a positive process of decision-making on the Iranian side. Dijan, you, you mentioned President Rouhani, uh, Mr. Shamkani, other figures. What about the Supreme Leader? It doesn't seem like he would be enthusiastic about a return to diplomacy. He is not enthusiastic because he has been uh, uh, generally over the past 30 years where he has sort of controlled Iranian politics as a supreme leader. He, he has had a very deep distrust um, in, in the Americans, uh, but this deep distrust didn't uh, impede uh, the process of nuclear negotiations under the Obama administration. We should remember that even back then he said he, said, uh, he agreed because uh, the political uh, decision makers in Iran were in favor of it. Uh, but he still distrusted the Americans. Unfortunately, the actions by the Trump administration um, uh, confirmed his view that you couldn't trust the American side in, in these types of negotiations. But again here, um, if let's say President-elect Biden gives a, an interview and mentions this very fact that the behavior of the Trump administration uh, you know, eroded a lot of confidence in the U.S. side, not just on, on the Iranian side, but also on the European side and other, other international stakeholders, and indicates that he would, he would uh, address some of these issues. For example, uh, you, you, you did mention that uh, also the, the Biden administration, also the U.S. side, would like to um, address some of the shortcomings of the uh, of the nuclear deal, whether they are sunsets or, or other aspects. Well, the Iranian side also has, has grievances. And one of them is that, uh, well, as long as the, the sanctions waivers on the US side are just presidential executive orders, then any change of presidency could undermine uh, the process. For example, what if the Biden administration came in and said it would try to uh, you know, codify some of these new decisions or some of the sanctions uh, removals in congressional laws. Something like that could, again, lead to a debate inside Iran where uh, 
sort of the pro-engagement uh, forces in Iran, whether it's President Rouhani or others, uh, go to Khamenei and say, this is what we have been asking for, and President Biden is delivering that, and that is an opportunity. So Khamenei is distrustful, but he doesn't reject it uh, ideologically. He, he, he wants to see a more beneficial scenario for for Iran, and, and if that can be achieved through new negotiations, then he would also, he would still probably have the distrust, but he would not impede the, the process in my view. Dijan, one more question on the Iran deal. The uh, IAEA, the most recent IAEA report says that Iran it, it continues to increase its stockpile of enriched uranium. Uh, that could be complicating uh, because the Biden administration or the incoming Biden administration uh, said uh, that it uh, expects Iran to be in compliance. Why is Iran continuing to increase the amounts of uh, enriched uranium? It's still below the threshold required uh, to create a, a nuclear weapon. But is Iran hedging here? Uh, in advance of uh, perceived negotiation or in case a new deal can't be worked out? I think it's more, more really increasing uh, the leverage on the Iranian side. I mean, don't forget, uh, even though uh, the Trump uh, administration on its, is on its way out, they are still uh, sort of passing new sanctions against Iran. And Iran realizes that once it gets to the point of uh, negotiating uh, either a new deal or negotiating a compliance for compliance, um, there will be uh, US leverage. Uh, and that is mainly the sanctions that the Trump administration introduced outside the realm of the nuclear sanctions, which were lifted anyhow. So the Iranian side, I think, is, um, is increasing its leverage uh, preparing for uh, for the scenario of negotiations, uh, and uh, I think the as far as I can see, uh, the Biden camp, uh, which includes a lot of people who actually negotiated the original uh, nuclear deal, they understand what the Iranians are doing, and and they would understand that obviously once it gets to the to the negotiations, uh, that they would have to uh, ask the Iranian side. Uh, to to reduce the stockpile and as, it's interesting to to remember that even though they have increased their uh, their stockpile it's still far far below the level it was when the nuclear deal was signed in 2015 so it will just take a couple of months to either convert some of this enriched uranium into powder or or do or just move it outside iran so it's a it's a a uh, quick process. The only element of the nuclear deal, this is also important to consider, the only element uh, of the activities of the past couple of years um, on the Iranian side that cannot be undone uh, is the research and development. So the Iranians, uh, when, once they started to uh, also reduce their compliance in response to the US uh, lack of compliance, uh, they also started researching new generations of centrifuges, and that knowledge obviously cannot be undone. But anything else, whether it's 
number of centrifuges or, or stockpiles, they can be reduced to the level of uh, full compliance within a couple of months. Bijan, um, one more question on the Iran nuclear deal. Would Iran ever consider giving up domestic production of enriched uranium as the UAE has done in its nuclear deal with the United States? I would be very surprised if, if the Iranian side would do that. I mean, if, uh, one, uh, well, they, they, their argument is that um, they need um, enrichment for some of their civilian nuclear activities, whether it's civilian um, power plants, nuclear power plants, or, or the medicinal uh, nuclear technology that they have. And the other element in it is, um, is this notion of, um, uh, notion of independence. Uh, don't forget, we are talking about a country that has been sanctioned for more than 40 years now. Uh, the, the, the inherent uh, psychology of Iran is that it should never depend uh, on the outside forces, no matter who they are, uh, because uh, they can sanction and, and limit Iran's access to specific um, items uh, and, and services. So uh, I would be very surprised if Iran ever accepted that. You mentioned the name of uh, the speaker of the Iranian parliament, Mohammad Bakr Ghalibaf. He's considered one of the contenders uh, for president. The elections are in June of 2021. You mentioned that he's a conservative. He also has uh, COVID-19 uh, at this time. Tell us uh, a little more about him, his prospects as a candidate, and who else may be in the running, and what are the issues that most Iranians are concerned about at this point? Obviously, you mentioned the sanctions in the economy. That's, that would obviously be at the top of the agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a couple of words about Qalibov. Qalibov um, uh, ha has run for president uh, before, um, and uh, the first time in 2005 when Ahmadinejad won uh, the elections, and also uh, in 2013 when President Rouhani won, uh, won the election. Um, he, he definitely has support in the population. He's obviously uh, a leading... Um, uh, I, I call the, the group that Kalibov uh, belongs to RGC commanders turned politicians. Um, and, and so he has segments of the Revolutionary Guards networks and segments of, uh, of, of the conservative elite. Um, so he definitely has a, uh, has a, uh, a network that, that is encouraging him to run. He also uh, successfully became the top candidates, uh, the, the, top representative of Tehran in the, in the current parliament uh, and also the speaker of the parliament. Uh, but he, he has a number of uh, limitations. Most importantly, uh, uh, during the time when he was mayor of Tehran, there was a lot of corruption in the municipality of Tehran. And, and these corruption files are coming out one after the other. Um, and he, he and his team have been exposed, uh, uh, you know, with uh, corruption and mismanagement in the municipality of Tehran. And I can imagine that if, if he becomes the top conservative candidate, it would be very easy uh, for his opponents to, to expose him to, uh, to, the, to the tenure as mayor of Tehran. And this is exactly also the point um, that the people 
care about, corruption, mismanagement, essentially, uh, maybe as a result of the political competition, uh, it's becoming more and more clear uh, that sanctions are only one part of the uh, story of the economic misery in Iran. Corruption and mismanagement and incompetence uh, are the other aspects. And um, if we say the top priority for the people, but also for the regime is to, to improve the economic conditions, then the question will be who can uh, manage the economy and also manage the, the, the governance structures in a way that there is less corruption and there is a more expertise-based or merit-based management uh, of the economy. Uh, so within that light, if, if, if they manage, if the regime as a whole manages to mobilize uh, the society to, uh, to participate in the elections, because this is, this is the one scenario we have to consider. If, if, if there is no improvement economically, uh, and if, if the country is still struggling with COVID-19 and all of these um, sort of uh, stagflation situation that we have, then the most likely scenario is that there will be a very low turnout in the elections and a low turnout usually benefits uh, the conservative candidates. And in that scenario, uh, someone like Ghalibov could potentially win the election. But <clears throat> there are other aspects. On the one side, we have um, uh, the challenge uh, for the regime as a whole to mobilize the people. Uh, it's very interesting. Every time they want to mobilize people, uh, someone, and this time it was the spokesperson of the so-called Guardian Council, talks about the possibility of women running as candidates. And again, last week, the, the spokesperson of the Guardian Council said it's, it, it is uh, conceivable that women can run as president, a presidential candidate. And if that happens, obviously, and it, depending on the candidate, there could be some, some mobilization. The other element that will play a role um, is that um, uh, Mr. Khamenei has mentioned a couple of times that he would like to see a younger figure, a younger politician, as the next president. So he sort of the, the notion of passing on the revolution to the next generation. Uh, so if that, again, if that becomes the main theme, Ghalibov is an old figure, and then we would have to look for younger figures. And there are some younger uh, uh, persons, figures, political uh, actors who have ambitions. One of them is, again, a Revolutionary Guards commander. Uh, the, the head of the so-called Khatam al-Ambiya uh, group of companies, which is the largest RGC company. His name is Mohammad Said, and there are there are lots of uh, indications that he has the ambition to become the next president. So we may have surprise. We may have surprise uh, candidates. Uh, if we talk about younger individuals, there will also be a younger candidate on the moderate side, uh, that is the current vice president for technological affairs, uh, uh, Mr. Satori. So we will have to wait and see who will not be nominated and also who will be vetted by the Guardian Council because that's the, the other important aspect.
Ron has, as you mentioned, really suffered because of uh, COVID-19, the sanctions since the U.S. withdrew from the JCPOA in May 2018 and, and low oil prices. But nonetheless, the IMF is expecting about 3% growth next year. Uh, you've written for El Monitor about how Iranian reforms and adaptations may have some positive long-term impact if, as you said before, they can get corruption under control. Uh, tell us, how do you see the prospects for Iran's economy and how compelling is the need, I would say very much so at this point, to deal with lifting sanctions or do you see the Iranian economy able to muddle through? Um, Generally, the, um, the, if you also look at previous uh, periods of harsh sanctions against Iran, especially the ones between 2010 and 2013, um, you always recognize a pattern uh, that the Iranian economy uh, sort of needs a couple of years to, to adapt to new realities. These new realities are partly for example, the, what has happened this time as well, the devaluation of the, of the currency, uh, the changing trading patterns, the fact that you have to circumvent sanctions uh, through third countries or find alternative solutions for the sort of financial transactions. That's why uh, also last, last time in the period that I just mentioned, you had, we had a, a, a two-year period of stagnation and then a period of growth. Um, that, that, is also, that also explains the, the prediction of the World Bank that uh, in 2021, the Iranian economy would grow by 3.2%. Um, what hasn't been factored in as yet, in my view, is the, the very devastating impact of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. I mean, we should not forget, and it's not it's not um, fully um, sort of Iran has not uh, fully managed the, the crisis it's still. So it's still uh, feeling the negative impact of the of the COVID-19 crisis. So we have to uh, wait and see what happens. Um, the lifting of sanctions will make things not only easier, but also, let's say, less expensive for the Iranian economy. Don't forget, sanctions can be circumvented and they are being circumvented, but the circumvention means that everything becomes more expensive and everything becomes more cumbersome. Um, so the lifting of sanctions will ease the, the, the process of economic recovery. Uh, and then the most important aspect of the lifting of sanctions for the Iranian economy is um, the fact that there would be a greater potential for foreign investment in the country, because that is what the Iranian economy needs. The Iranian economy needs, has a lot of capacities, and that's why it, it has become, it has been so resilient against external sanctions, but it does need investments, especially at a time when, um, when the government is not in a financial position um, to, to, you know, engage in, in infrastructure investment and, and other investments. So that is why, for example, in, within the current context and within the current debates in Iran, um, the so-called Iran-China partnership uh, is so important for Iran because within that partnership agreement, um, 
China commits to investing in Iran, investing extensively in Iran. So the lifting of sanctions again will uh, pave the way for, for the needed investments to come in from international players. Um, uh, so the economy um, will probably return to, a, to marginal growth, uh, but it's still well, well below the type of growth that the Iranian economy needs to create the types of jobs uh, and the types of uh, sort of development potential that the society needs. In the absence of, a, of an 8% annual growth, Iran's unemployment uh, situation will become, um, uh, will, will sort of worsen on an, on an annual basis. And that will obviously lead to a lot of other socioeconomic and, and political hiccups. So uh, again, back to your question, the economy can survive, but it cannot grow without the lifting of sanctions. You mentioned China, both Russia and China are signatories to the Iran nuclear deal and any effort by the United States to deal with Iran or broker a new deal or work through multilateral diplomacy will involve Moscow and Beijing. And tell us a little more about how Iran sees its ties with both countries. You mentioned they want Chinese investment. Um, what does Iran expect and what's possible? And, and I might add that the UN uh, embargo on selling or buying weapons from Iran expired last month. And do you see uh, Russia and China's selling arms to Iran? Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> To understand what, what's happening in Iran's uh, international relations right now, uh, we need to just uh, remind ourselves uh, why Iran um, uh, engaged uh, the international powers to, to sign the nuclear deal. Um, back in 2012, uh, when the first the secret meeting started and then later the nuclear negotiations in 2013, <clears throat> the Iranian strategy was uh, to uh, normalize relations, normalize trade and investment relations with the European Union. That's really what they were after. And if you look at closely at the nuclear deal, this is what they achieved. They never attempted to get rid of the primary sanctions by the, by the Americans. They wanted the secondary American sanctions to be lifted so that the European companies could work with Iran. And what they wanted was technology and investment. Uh, because as I said, these are the things, the two elements that the Iranian economy needs uh, to grow. Um, well, the experience of the JCPOA taught the Iranians that you can't really have the European Union without the US. And as long as the US is out there sanctioning Iran with primary and secondary sanctions. They have to forget the Western powers and focus on the Eastern powers. And this is exactly what's happening, a focus on the Eastern powers for two reasons. One is they can act independently. They are not going to always watch what the Americans are saying. And second, their trade and investment relations with Russia and China are not uh, attached to political and human rights issues and, 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 and debates on other uh, levels. And, and these are exactly the two types of expectations that Iran would have. So um, they are looking for um, closer ties with both Russia and China. They see Russia and China uh, not only as 
providers of capital and technology, but also as, as markets, we should not forget that. Uh, and also as the suppliers of those uh, technologies that the Western powers will not uh, uh, supply Iran with. And that is obviously uh, mainly arms uh, related technologies, military equipment, even sometimes policing and uh, uh, security equipment. So yes, uh, to answer your question, I believe that Russia and China will sell arms to Iran and obviously in the current global economic situation uh, that would you know pave the way for new markets for for them but thinking about the the arms embargo the lifting of the arms embargo we should also uh, remember that Iran is a producer of arms and Iran is working towards becoming an becoming an exporter of arms internationally and again, here you can say, well, what are they going to do uh, in, in light of American sanctions? Well, exactly the same thing they have done in light of American sanctions with exporting oil and exporting other items. They will find markets and they will find solutions. So the, the, the tendency towards Eastern powers is there, is strong, is politically accepted by all, uh, but it doesn't mean that they don't want uh, re good relations with Europe as well. Because as one uh, very uh, astute uh, analyst on the Iranian side said it once, uh, China and Russia take Iran more seriously if Iran has a good relationship with Europe as well. So that they feel Iran has alternatives. Uh, so that's why a return to the nuclear negotiations and the, to, to the nuclear deal could again entail for Iran that they improve the relationship with Western powers but they do rely more on the Eastern powers right now. Jean, uh, as time is um, getting short here with us, I do want to spend a little bit of our remaining time on Iran's policy in the region. Now, Iran is now facing a new alignment given Israel's normalization with the UAE and Bahrain. And, and interestingly, this follows some steps of goodwill between uh, Tehran and Abu Dhabi earlier this year around COVID when the UAE reached out on humanitarian grounds. How does Iran see the regional picture in the Gulf post-normalization? Obviously, it's a, it's a new situation. And, and um, I guess uh, it will require a number of debates within the different decision-making uh, uh, sort of structures in Iran. But my, uh, my assumption is first, Iran is not worried about this situation. Uh, don't forget, Iran has had good working relationships with other regional powers who have had close relations with uh, with Israel before, whether it was uh, Turkey at a specific time or the Republic of Azerbaijan in, in the past two decades or so. Um, Iran is not um, Iran is not worried as long as um, uh, the relationship does not translate into uh, Israeli security forces or Israeli military taking advantage of that relationship, for example, with the UAE or with Bahrain uh, to work against Iranian interests. That obviously becomes a challenge. And, and I'm sure as, as soon as there, there are signs that uh, something like that is happening, Iran will react differently. But again, I, I doubt that we would see that at least for the time being, because all, all, of, all of these smaller Persian Gulf countries, 
They also obviously know that Iran is there, is right next door, and Iran could undermine their, their interests as well. Um, there is another aspect in the process. Obviously, we all, the, the rhetorical reaction from Iran was, was harsh and it's uh, uh, sort of condemned the UAE and, and Bahrain and, and others as traitors. But don't forget that within the Islamic world, um, the more Islamic countries sign deals with um, Israel, the more Iran becomes the main uh, protector of the, the Palestinian cause or the main antagonist to Israel, which creates some degree of soft power, if, if you want, uh, may not be very important in the overall picture, uh, but it's there. So I, I would say, uh, rhetorically, we can obviously expect condemnation from Iran. Practically, I don't think it will change uh, the situation. And the Iranians understand uh, that the UAE may, on the one side, sign a deal with, um, with Israel to achieve points with the Trump administration, but on the other side, we'll also have a dialogue with Iran on a number of issues. So um, for, as far as Iran is concerned, in my view, on the real security and regional challenges on the ground, for at the time being, I don't think it has changed the regional picture for Iran. U.S. has made clear that it will not tolerate es escalation by Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. And in mm -hmm. January of this year, it killed Revolutionary Guard uh, Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani in response from militia attacks on, on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, which killed an American. But Tehran also sees its relationship with Iraq as vital, especially mm -hmm. under sanctions, but for many reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, Tehran backs Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa al-Qadabi, mm -hmm. yet seems to struggle with stepping back from the influence that these militias have. How does Iran see Iraq and the stakes there, including regarding Iraq's relationship with the United States? I would say Iran-Iraq relations are the top priority for, for the Iranian government and for the Iranian state as a whole, um, for various reasons. I mean, the most important uh, element in it is um, uh, the, the security the security aspect of, of a close relationship. Iraq has the longest land border with Iran. Uh, uh, we have had a history of, uh, of war and confrontation. Uh, and don't forget, Iraq is the second largest uh, Shiite majority uh, you know, population in the world. So there are so many aspects, cultural, religious. Uh, and on top of it, Iraq is the most important market for non-oil exports from Iran. So whichever sort of power center you look at, whether it's an economic power center, cultural or political, Iran-Iraq relations and getting them right is the top priority. And as such, um, the Iranians uh, have, have tried to develop, um, develop a, a strategy. You mentioned the the aspect of attacking, uh, let's say, U.S. interests in Iraq. Uh, it's true that there was a, a, a sense of escalation in, uh, uh, in late 2019, and it was part of the package of escalating and creating a cost to the Trump administration. But you can also see that there has been a de-escalation in the past few months, 
potentially just waiting for the outcome of the U.S. elections. I mean, I think uh, how the U.S.-Iraq relations factor in, we will have to analyze once the Biden administration is in. But Iran, in my view, has has had a very careful strategy and it's probably one of the areas where all the different power centers in Iran are very coordinated. You don't see this level of coordination uh, in other policy areas, uh, but in, 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 with regards to Iraq relations, there is a lot of debate and coordination. And as I said, with the desire to maintain a, a cordial neighborly relationship and with a high level of economic integration. Don't forget Iraq depends on energy imports from Iran, both electricity and gas. And both countries have a very deep um, desire to deepen the, uh, the economic uh, ties. I mean, the planned uh, volume for, or the targeted volume for bilateral trade is $20 billion, which would be amazing for, for the Iranian economy. And right now, Iraq is also playing an important role in helping Iranian companies circumvent some of the sanctions, as I mentioned earlier. John, is Iran doing any reassessment of its regional policies due to U.S. Uh, increased sanctions and pressure on the Syrian government and, and Hezbollah in Lebanon? Uh, does it see itself winning or losing in Lebanon and Syria, given the events of the last year? Um, I don't think I don't think they have um, they have come to a conclusion. I think the situation is still very fluid. But again, don't forget when we talk about Iran and and the assessment of of its regional policies, we have to ask ourselves: Are we talking about the Iranian government, um, or are we talking about the Iran the sort of revolutionary guards as one of the key stakeholders in in the regional? Uh, uh, activities, regional uh, networks, and so on. The Revolutionary Guards, uh, in my view, um, the, the only aspect of whether we want to call it reassessment or, or change is that, in my view, the Revolutionary Guards are looking at Syria and even Iraq uh, in, within, within a, an economic assessment and now more and more rather than within a sort of regional security assessment. The economic assessment says, well, we have invested so, invested so, invested so much money in, uh, uh, in these countries. We have fought ISIS. Uh, we have helped them, uh, you know, provide security in their country. Now is the time for us to reap the benefits from those investments and, and secure projects and secure economic interests in these countries. That, that is a very different uh, attitude compared to a few years ago where the whole, the notion was we have, to, uh, we have to be present in those countries so that ISIS would never get into Iranian territory. Um, that reassessment is there. There is certainly uh, a debate inside the country on whether these policies have been successful or whether Iran would have been better off um, spending some of that money or some of that effort in within the country. But obviously, as I said, the situation is still very fluid. Uh, and I don't think we can, we can have a final conclusion about how the Iranian regime feels about, about the regional policies. Ijan, we're just about out of time. I want to ask you uh, a big question, a uh, short answer to a big question, if I can. 
is the Iranian government stronger or weaker as a result of maximum pressure the last few years and, and COVID and corruption, as you've been talking about? Um, many in the United States have uh, uh, implicitly or explicitly talked about regime change. Is that a realistic policy in dealing with Iran? No, it's not a realistic policy. I mean, the, uh, the sanctions have, have hurt Iran without a doubt, economically, politically, socially, uh, whatever aspect you look at in, in terms of uh, the confidence of the Iranian population in the, also in the, in the Iranian state uh, and state institutions, uh, there, there have been lots of costs to the Iranian uh, regime. But um, this is not a, a regime that is built on, uh, uh, on sort of popular sentiments. Uh, it's a regime that, uh, that has, has evolved from you know, a revolutionary uh, state into trying to become a more, more uh, stable regional player. And in, in looking at the different stakeholders of that regime, especially because uh, it's, it's probably the most important element, looking at the revolutionary guards, in my view, they have been empowered as a result of the Trump policies over the past um, few years. I mean, if you sanction a country like Iran, Iran is not a country that will just uh, uh, sit back and say, well, we lost, the Americans are sanctioning us. They will actually uh, resist and develop the, as I said, new, new approaches and those new approaches, whether it's uh, uh, greater domestic capacity building, uh, whether it's weakening the government uh, and so on, they all uh, have benefited uh, the revolutionary guards and to, a, to an extent where political stakeholders find it uh, justified to say the next president should be a commander of the revolutionary guards because we are the only ones who can manage this, this country and this economy. So it, in my view, it has actually backfired and I don't see a regime change in the cards. Dijan, last question. Uh, it seems that the list of Americans held in Iran is down to three, Siamak Namazi, uh, his father, Bakr Namazi, and Mordad Tabaz, dual nationals. There are other dual nationals from other countries held as well. Do you see prospects for an exchange and getting their release from these unjust detention in the coming months? I, I sincerely hope so. I mean, it's it's really sad, uh, especially Siamak Namazi, who has been uh, now the longest held uh, dual citizen in Iran for more than five years. Um, all of these individuals, the Iranian Americans, but also the Iranian European dual citizens, they have all become victims of of a political game of of a sort of culture of hostage taking on the Iranian side. Um, the if we look at the past um, patterns, especially the major prisoner swap that uh, happened on the same day as the JCPOA was implemented on the 16th of January, 2016, um, if, if the two sides engage um, uh, and they find a formula for a compliance for compliance, then there would be room for, uh, you know, some uh, de-escalation 
which would also include uh, prisoner swaps or releases of uh, prisoners. In my view, um, it's on the one side uh, a sad fact um, on the Iranian side that the Iranian stakeholders and decision makers continue to take hostages, but also a sad fact that the American, uh, or let's say the Trump administration uh, did not realize that uh, escalating relations with Iran is not going to help the freedom of these, these hostages. I hope that the Biden administration will, um, will find ways of de-escalation, which hopefully then also would lead to the release of these prisoners. Bijan, thank you for joining us today on On the Middle East. This was a fascinating discussion, a really comprehensive analysis and conversation about what's happening in Iran and what we might expect in U.S.-Iran relations. Much appreciated for your joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you. We will be right back with a few closing remarks and takeaways from my conversation just now with Bijan Kajapur after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here. On Israel, Al Monitor. Welcome back. A few takeaways from our conversation just now with Bijan Kajapur. First, Bijan sees the transition to a Biden administration as the opportunity for some creative diplomacy with Iran. He said not to be put off by Iran's calls for compensation and an apology the more nuanced and practical approach from Bijan's perspective would be for the Biden administration to instead signal that the U.S. will not block a pending IMF loan to Iran, as the Trump administration has done, and that it will rescind many of the executive orders that imposed oil and banking sanctions on Iran. Now, second, Bijan mentioned that Iran's increasing of its stockpile of enriched uranium is leverage for coming negotiations with the United States, not a sign that it's pursuing a nuclear weapon. And that this stockpile, which has still not reached pre-2015 levels, can actually be reduced in a short amount of time. That said, Iran is unlikely to consider a position of zero enrichment as we have discussed in previous podcasts with both Israeli Ambassador to the U.S. Ron Dermer and UAE Ambassador to the U.S. Yusuf El Taiba, zero enrichment would indeed be the preferred approach for an Iran nuclear deal 
by both Israel and the UAE. The U.S. under Biden will also be engaging its regional allies about Iran, I think even more so than was the case during the JCPOA negotiations. Third, problematic for an incoming Biden administration is that Bijan says Iran is likely to buy arms from Russia and China and to sell arms as well. It's tough, I think, for the U.S. to swallow the lifting of sanctions on Iran arms imports and exports. As I have mentioned previously and written at O-Monitor, the path to a new Iran deal will end up going through Moscow and Beijing. Fourth, whether the U.S. can capture a new Iran deal in a treaty, as Bijan says would be the preference in Iran rather than executive orders, would likely depend first on the progress in diplomacy with Iran, and secondly, or indeed concurrently, Biden's relationship with the next Congress, where the Senate may be in Republican hands, pending the outcome of the Senate runoff elections in Georgia on January 5th. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East, and thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other All Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Mm-hmm.